0: Jesus made me do it. Let's set the scene so that we can understand what was taking place as accurately as possible. Jesus has returned to Jerusalem for one of the many Jewish feasts. By the way, John has him returning to to Jerusalem more than any of the other gospel writers. He speaks of this more than they do. Every time he speaks of Jesus going back to Jerusalem for the feast for a certain feast he names the feast except one time and that is the feast he goes to in John chapter 5 he doesn't tell us what feast if it was important he would have told us Jesus goes to an exact location it's near the sheep gate I'm sure you know where the sheep gate is it was a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic Bethesda meant House of Mercy. That's important. There was a member, there was uh, a-, there's a member of our church here, was here at 9 o'clock, and he was raised in a children's home. He reminded me of this, and, and I knew it, I'd forgotten it. He was raised in a children's home that was started by George Whitfield in Savannah, Georgia. I accused him as being as old as Whitfield, too. But that was in the 17, I think it was 1740 that that was started. And he was raised in that home. And the name of it was Bethesda, House of Mercy. What a great name. This pool, this House of Mercy, the reason they called it a house, this pool was surrounded by five covered porches or uh, patios. A colonnade, a a row of columns supported a roof. In fact, it supported five roofs. If you were looking at this and saw this pool and you didn't see any people there, you just saw it, you would say, what a beautiful place. This must be a resort. The waters of the pool were probably fed by springs, maybe warm springs, maybe hot springs. They were thought to have recuperative powers. And you say, oh, that must have really been an expensive spa. No. These porches, these covered patios were filled with the blind, with the lame, with the paralyzed. If you look at verse 3, John says, there was a multitude, not a few, but a multitude everywhere you look. I was thinking about that this week. Probably none of us have never seen this out like that. Just hundreds and hundreds of paralyzed, lame, and blind people. These were people who could not take care of themselves. The place had probably evolved into a type of mercy center. We have them in our cities today where different charities come together and provide for people who cannot support themselves. Hence, it had been given the name Bethesda, the House of Mercy. By the way, theological liberals in the past, in fact, for many centuries, the theological liberals that refused to believe the Bible and would find instances in the Bible to question and say, oh, that didn't happen like that. The theological liberals used to say there's no evidence. We have no archaeological evidence that this place, the pool of Bethesda, and this colonnade, there's no proof it existed. We can't find it anywhere in our archaeological digs in Jerusalem. And then just in recent history, the archaeologists uncovered just such a place in Jerusalem, exactly like it's described here, exactly where it's described here. One other matter to set this to, to take care of the text. At certain times the water would be deserved, would be disturbed, be stirred, it would bubble up. Probably heat from underground springs. Now if you have a King James Version of the Bible, There's a fourth verse in chapter 5 that is not in many of our Bibles. It reads this. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, you will not find that verse in the New International Version. You'll not find that verse in the English Standard Version. One of the most accurate versions ever translated, the American Standard Version, ASV. It's not in the Revised Standard Version. Now, all those Bibles are known among evangelicals as being evangelical Bibles. Now, we believe, as evangelicals, we believe the Bible, I believe the Bible, is inerrant, It's infallible in its original documents, in the original manuscripts. Now, we don't have the original manuscript of John or Matthew. We don't have the original manuscript of the book of Romans or the book of Ephesians. But we have copies, manuscripts that were very, very early copies. And there is, in all of those earliest, most accurate copies, Verse 4 does not occur. It's just omitted. It's thought that some scribe uh, somewhere along the way thought he would add his own thoughts to it and put in that verse 4 about the angel coming to the waters. You now, don't get nervous and say, Well, John, I thought you said the Bible was an error. In fact, yes, it is in the original manuscript. And it's the commitment to inerrancy that caused the scholars to say, biblical scholars, strong scholars to say, that verse was not there in the original. We want to get as close to the original as we can. So that is the text. That is the context. So Jesus comes to this health spa for the destitute. He singles out this one man who has been there for 38 years. And I want you to first see here a thoughtful and intelligent question. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Now notice. Jesus just comes to this man. Usually in the Gospels we see, like the nobleman who came about his son, people come to Jesus and want to be healed. They follow him by the multitudes and want to be healed. Jesus quietly goes to this man himself, and he asks this question, do you want to be healed? Now, at first glance, Blake and I were talking about that this morning. At first glance, the question seems inane. You're saying to a man who's been crippled for 38 years, paralytic? You say, do you, would you like to be healed? Why do you even ask Jesus? Well, Jesus understood two truths that we're missing if we think the question is innate. It's not inane at all. The man had been at the pool for most of 38 years. He had completely adapted to that way of living. He lived by the charity of others. He probably did not go home. This was probably where he stayed 24-7. He did not work. Food was provided by the charity of others, probably different groups through Jerusalem. His life was completely dependent on others. His fellowship, his relationships, this giving and taking in relationship, it all revolved around the group there at Bethesda. That's where his home was. He knew all these people. These people knew him. That's the first truth. That's why Jesus asked the question. Second the second truth is that if Jesus healed him, Jesus knew that Batman's life would be completely changed. He would no longer be paralyzed. He, could, he would lose his place at Bethesda. He would have to leave. He'd have to go to work. People would stop bringing him food. He had to go get his food and earn his food. He would be expected to provide for himself. R.C. Sproul, and Rod talking about this passage, said that uh, one evening he was headed home Uh, Walking down the street of the local town, he passed in front of a jewelry store and as he was going by, he heard this shout and this man came running out of the jewelry store and nearly knocked him down, ran into him. And R.C. heard the words, thief, thief, stop that man. And so R.C. grabbed hold of him. He said, the man didn't struggle. He didn't try to struggle. He didn't hit him. He didn't pull a gun and shoot him. He said, the man looked at me and said, I give up. R.C. waited there. The police came and took the man away. The next day, he saw a policeman that he knew, one of the men that came in response to the call. He said, who was that man? What happened to him? He said, oh, we have him in jail. He said, we're real familiar with him. He said he has spent most of his life in jail, and every time he gets out, the first thing he does is go commit a crime so he can go back to prison. He had been institutionalized. He had become so accustomed to life in prison that he could not live on the outside. That's the reason Jesus asked the question. You really want to get in that water and be made whole? Is that what you're after? You know, when we're faced with the Christ of the Gospels, what does Jesus say to us? You want to be saved? If you've encountered the gospel, you've encountered the Savior, the Holy Spirit saying to you, You really want to be saved? Do you want to be healed from the wretched disease of sin that plagues mankind? It's a, it's a healing that it's saving. That will drastically, drastically change your life. It might mean a whole new group of friends. It may mean a leaving and a coming to. There's an exact parallel between Jesus asking this man and Bethesda, do you want to be healed? And Jesus asking us, do you want to be saved? In fact, being saved, is a much more drastic change than the healing from paralysis. Augustine, he talks about this. Augustine, the great intellect, theologian, and author of the early church. In the Confessions, in his book, The Confessions, he wrote, he lived a very wayward life early on. He had a Christian mother, by the way, Monica, famous in church history. She's a saint in the Catholic Church. St. Monica, and that was his mother. And so he was exposed to the Christian faith. And he said in confessions, he used to pray as a youth, Lord, make me chaste, but not just yet. Make me chaste, but I'm not ready yet. Over and over again, I've heard people had them say to me when confronted by Christ, John. Probably someday. Probably someday. But not just yet. I don't want to give up the way I'm living. A thoughtful and intelligent question. Secondly, I want you to see a misunderstood offer. A misunderstood offer. Look at verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water stirred and while I'm going another steps down before me, Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. and He took up his bed and walked. And in answer to Jesus question, the man begins to tell Jesus how he can help him. He didn't say, yes, I want to be healed. He said, I want to get in the pool. And I can't get into it because when the waters are stirred, people get in front of me. I can't do anything about it. He's looking at Jesus to help him get in the water. He's probably thinking, this man's going to help me get in the water. Now think about that for a minute. The Messiah of all of Israel is standing there with that man. A man who can speak a word. And the paralysis is gone. Jesus, help me get down to the water. We laugh at this. We want to say to man, this is Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man. Are you kidding? He does not help paralytics down to the water. He ends the paralysis. But that's so much like the world. Most of us have tried this with Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God come in the flesh. The Prince of Heaven has come to the midst of His creation he came to take our sin upon himself. He came to take our guilt upon himself. He came to take the penalty that was due us, the punishment that was due us. He came to take it upon himself. The world pays no attention to that message. You never hear that message talked about. Not from the world. The world comes to Jesus and tells Jesus, here's what you can do for me. Here's how you can, quote, save me. He says, or oh, the world comes and says, I have people call me and they never come to church, show no interest in church, show no interest in the gospel, and no call because I know I'm ministering. And say, John, I need you to pray for me. I have cancer. And I want to take the phone and look at it and say, Are you kidding me? You've got something much worse than cancer. You've got a cancer of your soul. That cancer that you have is only kill your body. The cancer you really have and you ought to be concerned about will kill your soul. These people come and say, I, "I'm financially in trouble. I, I'm just about to be ruined. Would you pray for me?" Somebody come and say, "Well, my son or daughter's a drug addict." And, and, of course, we want to pray for them. But their greatest problem is not their addiction. You remember, but that's what the world does. They always request Jesus of something that's lesser than salvation. Remember the four men that brought that paralytic to Jesus? A huge crowd, huge crowd. Such a big crowd, they couldn't get to Jesus, so they tore off the roof where Jesus was and let the man down. It's right in front of Jesus. I think it's one of the most humorous, in a reverent way, the most humorous scenes in all the New Testament. Here's this paralytic. This poor creature is lying in front of Jesus. The four men are looking down from above, knowing what's going to happen. The man's looking up, hoping he knows what's going to happen. And Jesus says, man, speaking to the man, he says, man, your sins be forgiven you. And you can just see those four men looking at each other. He didn't get the message of why we came. This man looks up. And what's he want? If you opened him up at that point, he would have been saying, well, that's disappointing. I want to walk. The guys up there told me I'd come to you and you'd. Help me walk. And then Jesus said, So that you know, that you may know, I have the power to forgive sins, and so that you'll know that that's the reason, the greater reason I came, take up your bed and walk. Taking up your bed and walking is nothing compared to the salvation of that cross. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, listen to me about this. Listen to me. You may be looking for something else. You may need help. Your marriage may need help. You may have a son or daughter that's addicted. You may be addicted. I'm telling you, the first thing is you go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I want that cross. I want your resurrection. I want you in my life. If I have cancer and I'm going to die, I want you in my life. If I'm going to fight this addiction the rest of my life, I don't care. I want you in my life. I have found that most people in the world, that's in the world, if, there's, if they seek Jesus, they want him to do something far less than save them from their sins. This guy did. A thoughtful and intelligent question. S- Secondly, a misunderstood offer. Thirdly, a very right answer with a questionable motive. You say, what are you talking about? Well, let's read it. Look at verse 9. Now, that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's a Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who's the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, There's nothing that, that nothing worse will happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews, that's the religious leaders, that it was Jesus who had healed him. So John uses this miracle to introduce, you got it, to introduce the hostility of the Pharisees and Sanhedrin to Jesus. It was coming into full blossom. But we shall save that to next week. Go back to this man. Jesus had commanded the man to take up his bed and walk. And that's what the man did. The religious leaders immediately, he walks out of Bethesda, he's walking, he's carrying his bed. The religious leaders immediately accused the man and said, what are you doing? You're breaking Sabbath law. The rabbinical law was strict about what you could carry on the Sabbath. Here's this man, he walks out of Bethesda. There's hundreds, hundreds of people all around and he's carrying his bed. And so these religious leaders are standing there and saying, what are you doing? Are you crazy? Do you see anyone else carrying the bed? Do you see anyone carrying urns or carrying heavy stuff? It's a Sabbath, man. It's a Sabbath. He's classic. He does what we always do. He blames somebody else. He says, look, I'm just obeying the guy. Who healed me? He said, take up my bed and walk. I'm taking up his bed. You think I'm going to walk and just leave my bed? He told me take my bed. And they said, well, who healed you? He said, I don't know. I know the man was being honest. I think Jesus was by himself at Bethesda. They may not have been, his disciples may not have been with him at this feast. There's no mention of them in this fifth chapter. It's very obviously that he was being stealthful. He came to the man. The man didn't come seeking him. Jesus didn't have an honorage. He comes to the man. You know, man doesn't know who he is. He may have known the name of Jesus, but this is some guy that just walked up to him. I think he was trying to lay low when you, when you say, "Well, what about when he healed him? You think about that for a minute. It says, "Take up your man." suddenly the man says, can stand up. What do you think every person in that place did? They can all see? They had known him for 38 years. You're walking. I mean, the place just erupted. And Jesus just stepped back. And it says it later in the chapter. It said Jesus withdrew himself. On purpose, Jesus just backed away. And then it says, you ask me who healed me? I don't have a slightest who he was. Now, I'm unsure about the man's motive. But his answer is absolutely correct. I'm just doing what the healer told me to do. You know, I want to be able to say that about my life. And if we're Christians, we want to be able to say that about our lives. I'm just doing what Christ told me to do. When the world says, why are you praying? Why are you reading your Bible? Why do you go to church? Don't you know all these things are cake? They're silly. Why are you faithful to your wife? Why are you faithful to your husband? Why do you believe in marriage? Why do you believe what you do about the family? Why do you forgive when you're wronged? Why do you sing songs in long dark nights when it's hard and miserable? Why is your life marked with joy? I want to be able to say Jesus he makes me do it. He's the one. He's the one. That's what the apostles said about themselves. We could spend the rest of the evening the rest of the afternoon reading scriptures that teach this. Just choose one. It's on your scripture sheet. Galatians 2.20 I've been crucified with Christ. This is Paul. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I live But Christ who lives in in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, this life I'm living, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul was saying, Jesus makes me do it. It's his fault. He did it. A thoughtful, intelligent question, a misunderstood offer, a right answer with a questionable motive, and finally, The call to a changed life reiterated. Look at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Then then the man went away and told the religious leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. And you hardly ever see this in the Gospels. Jesus goes to find the man later. Think of a miracle that Jesus did, making a person well. Healing a person. And later he goes and finds the person. You just don't read it. Jesus goes and finds the man. The man had gone to the temple. That tells me that many people have misunderstood this man. He was probably in the temple because of what had happened to him. That's why he was there. He was there to pray and worship. We don't, as I said, we never see people. We don't see, often see, Jesus tracking down the people he had healed. But he did this time. Maybe it had to do with the stealth that Jesus had exercised in coming to the man and then just stepping out of the picture as soon as the man's healed. But Jesus reiterates his point that he had made when he asked the man if he wanted to be healed. He was now saying, see, you are well. Those are the exact words. See, you are well. You're healed. Now you go live out the new life that my physical healing has given you. Sin, no more. Jesus suggests that to do otherwise could bring serious repercussions. I love what happened next. Some some commentators read this and they say, He went immediately and told on Jesus. I, I think that's rather foolish. The man went to find the religious leaders who had interrogated him. By now he knows they're hostile to Jesus. He could have remained silent. He did not. I think that this was his confession of faith. You asked me who healed me? I didn't know. But I've come back to tell you who healed me. His name is Jesus. He healed me. He did it. And why are you so bad at him? He would not be intimidated by their opposition to Jesus. Jesus had made him walk. Jesus made me do it. The man could have ignored them. He didn't have to go to them. He could have just quietly slipped away. But he made his declaration for Christ right then. Do we live our lives in such a way that as weak and as feeble as we are, Beware of ever saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a really strong Christian. I'm a true believer. We're feeble, folks. In the heaven, the angels in heaven look on us with amazement that God in his mercy loves us. We're feeble. But we can say. Jesus calls me to live the way that I live. In our world we're facing increasing increasingly we're facing hostile opposition. It will be, see, it will be easier just to leave off his name. You're going to college, it will be easier at the sorority fraternity. you leave off his name. It will all, it would just be just be easier to be quiet. This man says, you want to know who healed me? You want to know what my life is about? It's about Jesus. One day, Alexander the Great was holding court in Nebuchadnezzar's palace in Babylon. He sat on that great golden throne. And he was pronouncing, he was playing the judge and pronouncing sentence. On different crimes that either his soldiers or the people of the city had committed. And a young soldier from Macedonia was brought before him. He was charged with cowardice, running away in battle. Now, if you know anything about Alexander, this was an anathema to him. He, his army lived with a reputation that they were fearless. And everyone expected immediate death sentence. But this young man, for some reason, his appearance moved Alexander. Alexander softened, and he looked at the young man and said, What's your name? The man muttered something. Alexander couldn't he, he said, Soldier, I ask you your name. What is it? And he said a little bit louder, Alexander. And Alexander said, what did you say your name was? The man began to stammer and stutter. E- Alexander, sir. And Alexander came off of that throne, grabbed the young man and threw him to the ground. And said, you change your ways or you change your name. People, we have dared to take on the name of Christ. If I would stood at that front door, you coming in this morning, and said, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Every one of us would have said, yeah, I've taken the name of Christ. How can we live out in this hostile world and not take his name out there? That's what many of us are doing. We want to be liked by our friends. We want to keep dating this guy or keep dating this girl. We want to be popular at work or wherever we are. We can learn something from this man. Jesus is your name. You heal me. And he goes... To the hostile folks. And he says, You want to know who healed me? His name is Jesus.